0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Chan. Today's conversation is with Ryan Panzer, Ryan is the author of Grace and Gigabytes, Being Church in a Tech-Shaped Culture. Uh, This is a recently published book, um, should be available right now on uh, on Amazon and where other books are sold. Uh, Ryan is a former student of mine, a graduate of Luther Seminary, and is somebody who has thought uh, really long and hard about the kind of various intersections between church and technology and also between kind of education and technology, and a lot of that just emerges out of his own. Kind of professional experience. Of course, he has uh, his Masters of Divinity, um, which, uh, like I said, he did here at Luther Seminary, uh, but he has also worked uh, within the tech world. He worked at Google for a time. Um, uh, and uh, now works with Zendesk, and and so just has quite a bit of experience in both worlds, both the, the world of of the church and church leadership, and also the world of tech. And it, many of his roles in these these tech businesses have, has, have businesses have had to do with both marketing and educational design in tech spaces. And so he just he, he really has some interesting ways of thinking about, uh, as the subtitle of the book suggests. A uh, ways of being church in a tech-shaped culture. So I think you all are going to enjoy this conversation. Of course, it's particularly relevant right now, in the middle of uh, in the middle of COVID, as churches are adapting in various ways to the new digital environment in which they're being forced to exist. And um, and and so his book, I think, is quite timely in that sense. And you know, it's it's uncertain what all the kind of digital innovation around church worship, how much of that's going to carry over after the pandemic kind of recedes into the background. But even still, I think uh, Ryan's uh, Ryan's comments and his arguments really uh, uh, transcend just the current COVID moment and I think will be quite relevant uh, long after Uh, COVID has uh, receded so in any case I think you all are going to enjoy the conversation we're going to hear a few words from our sponsors and once again uh, please send me your guest recommendations I'd love to know the names of people you want to hear from on the show Um, I am happy to I'm actually quite interested in expanding the uh, the number of voices that that are featured here, I think, um, given the uh, given the stakes, given what's at stake right now in the 21st century and how Christian, and sort of what the future of Christianity is going to look like in America, um, it is it is necessary to listen to a wide range of voices, especially from people who are uh, thinking intentionally and doing work on the ground uh, around gospel ministry. So in any case, uh, enjoy the conversation. Here are a few words from our sponsors. Local supplies and using sustainable, earth-gentle practices whenever possible. Whether you're looking for a thoughtful gift, custom church wear, or a new favorite mug, Studio Two Ceramics has something for you and something to share. Listeners of the Gospel Beautiful podcast receive 10% discount on all purchases. Visit our website, studio2ceramics.com, that's the number 2, and use the coupon code GOSPEL.
1: Hey there, Gospel Beautiful Podcast listeners. This is Brian Schrader, creator of Worship Forward, a resource for progressive, innovative worship leaders. Here you'll find conversations about arranging hymns for your worship band, using song lyrics that promote justice, and how to choose great worship songs to use at your church. Check it out at worshipforward.blog.
0: Ryan Panzer, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. Well, hey, congratulations are at hand for your uh, your recently published book, Grace in
1: Gigabytes. So uh, congratulations on that good work. Well, thanks so much. It's sure to be the hot holiday gift of the 2020 <laughs> Christmas season
0: there is no doubt about that we all need uh, uh coasters for our eggnog and so you can you can both read it and then use it as a coaster for your eggnog all at the same time
1: and you know it's short and lighthearted. it's almost the perfect holiday holiday quarantine companion
0: <laughs>
1: is 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 that a line you've been using to
0: market no i just made
1: that up on the spot <laughs>
0: Oh, that's good. It's really impressive. Well, the book Ryan is uh, "Grace and Gigabytes: Being Church in a Tech Shape World," published by Fortress uh, Fortress Press. It is um, uh, it is available both digitally, as you might expect, and uh, also in physical copies. Let's start. So, I, l- I love the love the title here, "Grace and Gigabytes," in part because it, it sort of speaks a little bit to your own biography. You have both professional and educational. I guess, sort of background in both, right? Both the Grace and the Gigabytes. Talk to us a little bit about your background and the way that it uh, kind of fed into this project.
1: Well, you know, it all starts when I was about to graduate from, from college and I really wanted to go into the ministry and go into seminary. And I just happened to get this job offer from Google at the time. And I remember talking it over with some pastors and some friends, and they all looked at me like, are you crazy? You're going to pass up a job offer from Google? And I said, no, I can't do that. So I I went and started work in the tech industry. uh, And at the same time, I was able to start my seminary experience. So because of Luther Seminary's, Seminary's distributed learning program, I was able to work full time at Google in learning and development while I was going through my seminary coursework. And and that started what ended up being kind of a lifelong path of of working at this intersection of of church and technology. I've always had one foot in the in the tech industry professionally, uh, and I've always had one foot in the church. I've worked in youth ministry contexts. I do a lot of uh, supply preaching and Christian education work, uh, but lately I've been focused on helping churches to kind of navigate this new digital world that we've been I don't want to say confined to, but 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 that we've been. Uh, limited to his gatherings have been restricted for the last uh, eight months or so. Well, we'll definitely want to talk about that because it's the book was started
0: long before COVID, but I think sort of the the final touches were being put on it as COVID started to roll out. Is that right, Ryan? Did I get the timeline? Right? Yeah, no,
1: that's absolutely right. So I actually completed the manuscript of the book uh, in January. And then March 13th hit, and I I sent an urgent email to my editor and said, hey, I think we need to rethink some of this. (laughs) Uh, Fortunately, most of the material held up pretty well. Uh, I I did have to change a few statistics. I I mentioned in the original manuscript that that only 2% of churches work frequently live streaming their worship services. Uh, and after march 13th that number increased by about 98%. So, uh I had to had to remove a few things like that, but but otherwise the the book was finished before covid was even a, a anywhere in our imagination. That is something that could possibly happen.
0: Yeah. What Ryan, what was your uh, what was kind of your the the background that permitted you to enter into the world of Google, you know, professionally? What kind of set you up well for that?
1: Well, Google and the tech industry have a habit of hiring people that they, they like to talk to. Um, a lot of Google's senior leaders describe their typical hiring profile as someone they'd like to be stuck on an airplane with or, or stuck in an airport lounge with. And since all those people were taken, they they turned to me. Um, no, it was uh, <laughs> a, a, a sure combination of factors. So I had a, a a background in in leadership development that was exclusively from the church, and they found the leadership development experience really appealing. Uh, I, I had I had led the the student ministry for the Lutheran Campus Center at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I'd been a camp counselor. Believe it or not, there's a strong connection between being a camp counselor and being able to innovate in the business world. Even I 20- totally believe that, by the way. Oh, I, totally,
0: yeah. I was the camp counselor, too. And you are just thrown into so many unpredictable situations of leadership often. Yeah. And you just have to innovate on the spot and make it fun.
1: <laughs> I, I remember talking in my Google interview. Uh, they asked me uh, to describe some times I had been innovative and I told them about all the the rainy mornings when I would wake up and have to help these kids start campfires so they could have their pancake breakfasts out on camp, camp out. Or I'd have to talk about how uh, we didn't have any budget for repairing our tents. So I had to get really scrappy with restringing tent poles and and using random pieces of cloth we had lying around the camp to fix uh, gaping holes in tent roofs. Uh, but, but that's what the tech industry is focused on, is, is leadership and innovation. So all that all that work with the church, I think, made me uh, somebody that w- was appealing to companies like Google. That that is so fascinating,
0: Ryan. And so it's not like you were like a code nerd, like a code ninja, or something like that, where you had to kind of a background in how to, you know, like do computer languages or something like that. It was your your history with leadership and especially Christian leadership that really opened those doors for you. Did I? Do I understand that correctly?
1: Oh, 100%. And I didn't know how to code when I was just coming out of college, and I had barely even used Google Docs. I, I even think to this day, I, I'm not the the hardcore techie that a lot of people imagine me to be when they hear me talking about church and technology. Uh, I like to think of myself as someone who thinks critically about digital culture and, and, and the importance of innovation. And You can always pick up the tech tactics... Later on, and tech changes so fast that if you learn one programming language, there's a new program language to learn the next week. You learn how to use one app, that app is obsolete, and the company's out of business two weeks later so it, it it starts with really the mindsets and the pastures that you come to that conversation with well ahead of anything related to the technologies themselves.
0: so this is a little bit far afield of our conversation, Ryan, but I'm just kind of fascinated with what you've been saying about like recruitment and hiring practices. And it makes, you've, you, have you been through the candidacy process? I have actually, yeah. Okay. And, and you, and you've, oh, sorry. And you've walked through a bunch of other people with, you know, your cohort and whatnot. Yes. Um, Do you, are there any kind of practices that you picked up within tech on the recruitment hiring side that you feel like could be informative of how we do like candidacy and
1: calling in the church? Well, there's a couple. I, one thing you'll find throughout the tech industry is a commitment to, um diverse backgrounds and experience over formal education and certification so so as I was going through candidacy and I, i'm actually not done with that process i'm I'm pending an internship before I can uh get any sort of uh ordination but w- when you look at the tech industry they're always willing to substitute uh life experience if it's meaningful enough for uh, educational background or for, for being able to, um, you know, meet some kind of requirement that you, that you might see listed on, on a resume. Um, but the other thing you see in the tech world is that they're, they're willing to, um, they're willing to take a chance and throw people into leadership positions that there's a vetting process, of course, but there's a willingness to, to, to allow the culture of the organization, uh, to, uh, Move people where they need to be, and inside of the church's candidacy process, and I don't want to denigrate it too much because there's probably people involved with candidacy uh, that might be listening to this. But there's a lot of sifting, and a lot of you know, do you check every single one of these 35 boxes? Do you agree to all 150 of these bullet points? Uh, there's a lot more for better or worse, rigor and structure that goes into the candidacy process. And if you showed those processes to anybody from the tech world, uh, they, they, I think would be kind of astounded with the, the number of hoops that somebody has to jump through. Hmm. That's
0: interesting, you know, something maybe to th- to think about further. Uh, well, Ryan, let's jump into the book itself. Um, and I actually want to start with the table of contents. So let me let me pull that up here really quickly. So you, you organize the book into, into, uh, into sections and, uh, section one, section two, there are four sections. Now, let me give you the name of the sections and then, um, have you talk about why these four sections matter because the titles of these sections are also the, the, I think you say kind of the features of, of just about every app that you'll encounter um, uh, on you know your smartphone or your computer or whatnot. So, section one is questions. Section two is connection. Three is collaboration, and four is is creativity. Talk to us about those categories and why they are spe- why they're particularly important for uh kind of the gracing
1: of being being a a church in a tech shaped culture. Sure. So those four categories. Uh, the way I came up with those was by Uh, Doing a big whiteboard session and trying to identify the core aspects of all of our most ubiquitous technologies, our Googles and Facebooks and YouTubes and Snapchats, they they all do um, these four things. When you you distill them and look for the least common denominator, they give you the ability to ask questions, uh, to connect in a way that combines the offline and the online seamlessly to create things of your own design and to collaborate with those, uh, often to collaborate with those who aren't in, in your physical presence. So I would argue that the reason why those four things are successful isn't because of the apps themselves, but because the designers of those apps have found that our broader culture is really invested in in all of those four things, in asking questions and connecting Online and offline, and and, and so forth. So, it, it, as new technologies continue to come out, and if you look at new technologies that come out 2021 and beyond, I would imagine that the four those four core values will be at the center of of how those technologies are are, are designed to work. So, what yeah, that I mean, thought?
0: Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Ryan. Well what, up, that, what
1: that means for uh, for Christian leadership is. We're not so much tasked with figuring out how to use these technologies. Technologies come and go. Anyone who had a MySpace or a Zanga page in the early 2000s can tell you all about that. We're called to think about those values that these technology designers have really leaned into themselves because our broader culture cares a great deal about these things. That's where the opportunity is for the church.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, that's that's helpful, Ryan. And so can you maybe maybe unpack just a tiny bit more what each of these categories kind of entails? And and I think the first one, you start with questions, which I think is seems to be really at the heart of so much of the project you're trying to do, you know, having questions at the center of of hybrid and digital ministry. But just go through each of those four categories and kind of unpack
1: what you mean by Questions, connection, collaboration, creativity. Sure. So when we look at questions, you, you can see in any of our most widely used apps that each of these tools is basically a high-tech questions and answer machine. And what each of these tools do is that they allow you to ask the questions that are on your mind that are interesting to you, and then to evaluate from many possible answers. So Netflix is basically a device for asking the question, what should I watch tonight? Um Google is the, the, the most powerful question and answer machine uh, that we've ever had invented. And if and if you look at how Google works, you can ask these questions and, and Google will give you a number of different answers that you can select from. Now, it doesn't mean they just spew you, spew random nonsense at you. Uh, the answers are very much uh, ranked by an objective algorithm that, that thinks about uh, authenticity, that thinks about the quality of the content. Uh, that thinks about the accuracy of the content. When when I think about my experiences uh, growing up in the church, I I think that one of the things that the the church did, particularly in the the 1990s, was they wanted to provide you with the questions, uh, and then they wanted to provide you with the answers to those questions. Uh, The opportunity, especially like in a faith formation setting, is to allow your community to sit with the questions that are on their minds, and to explore the answers, to kind of sit with the, uh, the the tension of not knowing an immediate answer to every question we want to ask. And so that's where that section comes from, is, is connecting our culture's tendency to ask lots of questions uh, to programs of, of faith formation and to worship as well. Uh, when I look at the other sections, so, so section two of the book deals with connection, and, and specifically a, a type of connection called hybrid connection that combines online and offline experience seamlessly. And so that value comes from something like uh, like our Instagram stories. And if you look at Instagram, uh, Instagram is a device for streaming lived experience through photo and video in a way that uh, seamlessly integrates with everything that we're that we're going through and you have those boomerang features you have the live features uh instagram is designed to uh, not post photos and videos after the fact but to post and share content as it's really happening now when we have church um, before covid church was thought of as this institution that is mostly open on on sunday mornings and if you can't show up at a certain time on a certain date um, into a building that may or may not be accessible for for your needs, then you don't have access to the to the institution. So what I look at in that section is what are some ways we we in the church could could lean into this this norm of of hybrid online and offline connection. It doesn't mean abandoning what we're doing in person. Uh, it doesn't mean leaving the strong in-person community behind. Uh, rather, it talks about how we can augment the strong social bonds that come from being together in person with online opportunities that extend a welcome to those who can't gather in our immediate vicinity.
0: And in some ways, um, I'll let you go on with the chapter titles, unpacking those in a second, but in, in some ways that's just a recognition that the nature of connection has changed for people that, that the people are already, uh, Interacting with one another in a hybrid way—certainly this happened before COVID too, but now it's just more heightened—and um, and so the the fact that people could would only be able to interact kind of physically in a face-to-face during open, closed door hours is something of a something of a dinosaur, right? Something that's already culturally gone extinct, but maybe some people might be uh, clinging to in a way that doesn't recognize how connection is happening in other ways.
1: Yeah, and I think there's valid reasons for wanting to stay with the in-person community that, that has defined Christian practice for so long. Um, if we look at studies on social capital, Robert Putnam writes about how churches create remarkable social capital in very short amounts of time. In just an hour, twice a month, a church creates more social capital than just about any other type of institution. It brings people together for volunteerism, for service, for social connection, it does all of those things really, really well. So, so there's good reasons for, for staying with uh, what's working in person, or at least going back to it once it's safe to do so. The question is not how do we abandon it. The question is, um, what does it look like to extend that same ability to create Christian fellowship to a wider audience, to those who, who can't be um, gathered in person, one hour a week on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I
0: appreciated that you quoted Putnam in the book, and that bowling alone continues to uh, just impress me. You know, it's now like twenty years old, <laughs> roughly speaking, and that book is still uh, has a lot of insights. You know, and I think it's worth noting. I don't know if you say this in the book, but it's it's worth noting that the church has, since its inception, engaged in. Um, engaged in connective activities that have been mediated by non-human contact. And in particular, I think you even say this, in particular, we think about the way that Paul writes letters to the epistles, right? Like the the, the New Testament, especially the, the epistolary section, is an example of the church doing kind of connection and communication via textual media. And so it's not like, the church has only ever known kind of face-to-face encounter. We have been doing this kind of mediated uh, 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 exchange among churches for uh, since its beginning.
1: Yeah, for two thousand years. And uh, in, in Professor Heidi Campbell from Texas A&M University, uh, in her books on on new media and religion, she talks extensively about this. How. Uh, St. Paul uses writers uh, uses letters to connect far-flung communities. We use Facebook posts. It's really no different. The message hasn't changed, but the medium has. I, I think the, the, the wanting to be only an in-person community is actually a fairly new development, uh, perhaps that's unique to American forms of, of Christianity. And you're certainly right. Robert Putnam's work continues to hold up. I, I, I believe he wrote Bowling Alone well before... The internet was widely used, certainly w- well before the invention of the iPhone, and yet it's one of the most remarkable looks at uh, at our culture and, and our uh, ability to connect and what it means to connect. Fully agreed. Well, why don't you uh, say something a bit about a uh, collaboration
0: and creativity, and then we'll kind of dive into some more details in, in the in the book.
1: So, collaboration—you see this with with software like Google Docs that takes the perspectives of contributors from all around the world and channels them into a shared project or a shared objective uh, collaboration and specifically the ability to collaborate with with those around the world is built into the architecture of all modern organizations and churches are at different places with their with their ability to collaborate what's 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 interesting about about church that you don't see in a business is that you have so many invested stakeholders that aren't part of the staff or, or part of the clergy. Um, the collaborators in the church is, is the community itself, um, and there's gonna, always going to be far more lay uh, people than, than there are going to be staff or, or, or clergy. What collaboration looks like then uh, in the church has a, has a lot to do with our leadership structures and whether our leadership structures are staff-centric community-focused. I talk a lot about in this section the model of shared leadership and and what shared leadership looks like as a contrast to more executive forms of leadership that were popular in the American church uh, in the 80s and 90s and to some extent uh, remain popular today.
0: Yeah, and then uh, and then section so that's section three is collaboration. We have a couple chapters underneath that. I think it's like three to four chapters per section, and then section four, which I thought was really fascinating and and helpful and energizing, was uh, is called creativity. And as you say in the book, there are so many apps that we have right now that really are focused on. Creativity and on creating everything from we've mentioned Instagram, of course, um, but we've had an we've gained an increasing number of photo, audio, video editing tools that live on the phone itself. Um, And and you can do many of the things that a person could only previously do on like Photoshop or in. Audacity or some other kind of audio or video uh, editor, you can now do on your phone. And I think it's in recognition of the fact that people are doing serious creative work on these handheld devices and are then able to kind of seamlessly push them out into the world. So you have this kind of explosion of storytelling elements, visual, textual, audio, video, um, that all live on this little phone and it's it's it 's kind of a reflective of this creative impulse that uh that we see in so many of our apps. You also see connections there um, with the church and how the church should be uh, kind of navigating this hybrid
1: digital space. so maybe say a bit about that section four well i couldn 't have said it better myself. you know I think about a few years ago Samsung aired a commercial during the Academy Awards. And, and the commercial has this really energetic narrator who's talking about how we might not have uh, fancy cameras or audio editing equipment, but we do have our phones and we have our stories. And I've noticed that every year when you when you see the iPhone announcements, all they talk about these days are, are better photo capabilities and better video capabilities that enable us to be creative. So when, when we think about what would define uh the american christianity or 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 christian practice more broadly we want to think about how we can continue to tell the stories of our tradition by letting our communities describe how those stories have affected them by by letting our our um our communities kind of vamp on the stories that have uh given structure to this thousands of year uh, this tradition that stretches thousands of years and to, and to reinterpret and to reimagine and, and to remix. That doesn't mean we abandon the stories that have, have given us structure. In fact, it means we we prioritize them more than ever. So going back to creativity, uh, the church of the future will be a church that belongs to the artists. I've heard that said in, in many classes and workshops I've gone to, and and it's true. And I think good Christian leadership in the digital age isn't about creating content so much as it is about coaching your communities to create content that tells their own stories.
0: Mm, that's that's helpful, Ryan. Let me ask you a question about somebody who. Let me try and pose this question, kind of from the perspective of somebody who might, you know, they're, they're at a mid-sized congregation, maybe even a small congregation. They don't have huge media budgets you know that's pretty rare i think for churches to have huge media budgets maybe they don't even have that many tech skills maybe they're sort of on facebook for the sake of family and friends and posting fun things instagram maybe how would you encourage them to begin kind of dipping a toe into this vision that you've laid out for us for for kind of doing church in a hybrid uh social context what are just some ways that they could dip their toe
1: into this vision that you've cast force. So I'd think about it on three different levels. Uh, the, the, the first level, I would think about uh, the level of, of being a, a content creator. So if, you, if you're a church leader, you probably have some kind of a phone. That's, that's really all you need. And what I would recommend as a starting point is live content. Uh, getting into uh, live streaming on Facebook, uh, on, on Instagram, on YouTube, whether that's sermons, whether that's daily devotions, whether that's the entire worship service itself. You know, What's great about live content is there's a lot of forgiveness. When, when someone watches something synchronously, they're, they're willing to forgive the errs and the ums and, the, and the, the dropped cell phones and the bad audio because it's happening right there on their screen, right there in front of them. So that would be my first challenge is, is find a way to create live content that aligns to the needs of your community. The second thing I would encourage for that small church is to be a curator. There's so much Christian and spiritual content on the web, and a lot of it is a little bit questionable. I mean, if you do a Google search for who is Jesus, and you look at the, the advertisements that come up at the top of the page, I think some of them would make some some, perhaps some dubious claims that aren't even entirely um, founded theologically, so I, I think there's an important element of of being a church leader and, and looking at what what content speaks to you, what content could speak to your community, and sharing that content either through newsletters or, or social media. I think especially about uh, blog content as well as as video content. Uh, be a judicious curator for your community; it'll show them what to look for and it'll help them to identify resources that will advance their own faith practices. And I think the gold standard of living into the digital age, and especially with this, this value of creativity that I talk about in the fourth section is to coach your communities, to create content that tells their stories, Uh, coach them to write devotions, uh, to share quick podcast snippets, I know a lot of churches are doing work with TikTok this holiday season, and inviting families to recreate the nativity scene in living rooms using using the TikTok app. You know that, that's a really clever, low tech, um, but also highly attuned uh, technique that's deeply uh, aware of, of our culture's preference for being creative.
0: Well, those are that's all extremely helpful, Ryan, and I
1: think there. I think
0: mentally there can be this kind of chasm where pastors might think, oh my gosh, like TikTok and Facebook and making all this digital content. But I would just say, like, keep in mind that so much of your seminary education or so much of the pastor's vocation, you don't have to go to seminary to be a pastor in a lot of cases, so much of the ministry vocation is about content creation already. Like on a weekly basis, you are making content, whether it's, you know, a kid's sermon or whether it's you're doing programming for youth, or whether you're you know planning the, the the next week's worship service, you are all already doing so much content creation. So it's not like you're necessarily asking people to put on a different hat. It's to say, let's include within your suite of thing of uh, platforms you're creating for maybe Facebook. Maybe Instagram, maybe TikTok. And and I I think you don't need to do all these at the same time. Like choose a single platform that you're going to just learn on. And um and, and then just do it. And I what I really appreciated, Ryan, is what you said about the forgiveness of live content. Our aesthetics around video have changed rapidly. Um like what we consider to be acceptable and valuable video content has really changed. Like if you were to look at, I think, probably even just 10 years back, like what would have been considered to be like viral videos or whatever, I think live content would not be as high on the list as it is now. And the the kind of standards for excellence in videography would probably be a little different too.
1: So I live here in Wisconsin and, and one of the most popular YouTube series here is uh, called the Manitowoc Minute it's by a local comedian named Charlie Behrens, and he's, he's become actually quite famous on YouTube. But the way he started was creating these scrappy little three-minute recaps of the week's news, as told through a, a Northwoods, Wisconsin, like, hey there, guy, you know, go Paco, uh it, it, kind, of, kind of your, your, your comically <laughs> typical uh, Northeast Wisconsin persona. And they're just hilariously funny. They 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 joke about deer hunting and all these other you know things that are that are so common in in Wisconsin's culture. But what what Charlie kind of exemplifies is how you don't need uh, high tech equipment. You don't need to have a studio of of sound engineers to create great digital content. You just have to have the, the intentionality and and a little bit of of creative thought behind what your audience needs from you. Uh, th- that's why I think it's important, too, when we think about this conversation, to be choosy about what platforms we we'll want to engage on. Uh, if we're a church leader, it's not our call to be on all channels at all times and on, on all places, but to use the technologies that most closely align to our, to our mission and vision. Uh, I'm a big fan of Cal Newport, and, and Cal Newport wrote a book called Digital Minimalism choosing a focused life in a distracted world and his big his big thing is we're all so connected on all these different technologies that it almost becomes uh, like we are a commodity serving technology you know really technology is a tool that should be in service to our vision to our purpose uh, that should be in service to what what the church is all about so if we do one thing really well you know, As a small church with a, a low-tech um, and low-budget situation, we're going to be miles ahead of the churches that are on all channels, that are creating content for all audiences at all times. One thing really well is always preferable.
0: No, I, I appreciate that kind of digital minimism, minimalism uh, ethos, and th- the example that you just gave about this this comedian um, in in Wisconsin is is really fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. One is it's very niche, right? The, this this notion that you would kind of tell these stories about like a particular way of you know, a particular identity in in Wisconsin that will be kind of recognizable, I think, to a relatively small number of people. So there isn't this attempt to do like... Well, what's the term I'm trying to remember the marketing term that's used a um, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, advertisements that are like basically for everybody or content that is basically mass marketing that kind sure, of thing yeah, deal yeah it's it's niche marketing it's not mass marketing and I think that churches can also think about their own content that way that it's it's not about trying to appeal to everybody it's about trying to find like what is your niche audience and how do you create content that will help them here of course, the gospel, but then also hear kind of the value of your community, the, the the stories that are emerging from your community. You don't have to make content that is for everybody. You have to make it content that will be recognizable, meaningful, valuable to your people, right? And the people that you also want to welcome into your fold.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's so important to have a keen sense of what your church is all about. A lot of the experts I talked to as part of the book uh, were big on this idea that people don't fall in love with a church anymore. Uh, they fall in love with with a movement or they fall in love with, with a mission. So the content that you create isn't going to be um, what hooks your community because of the content itself. It's going to be what you say in that content. And if that content connects to uh, to, to what your, what your faith community is built on. And, and, you know, faith communities are so diverse. Some, some faith communities are activists. Some are healers. Some are great teachers. Some are very academic. Some are very spiritual lean into what the strengths are in, in your community. Not everybody has to have the same subject matter in all of their YouTube videos. It's okay to be uh, attuned to the nuance that exists within your church.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, questions and inquiry really seem to play an important role in the book, Ryan. And um I think part of this is there's there's kind of a, a pedagogical theory, I think, that that's at work in 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 a lot of what you do. And I think you mentioned Parker Palmer on this front as well. Um, but talk a little bit about this whole issue of kind of the this the role of questions within the church. It's especially uh foregrounded in section one and you have two chapters there that I want to draw attention to. The first one is called The Past, a church that silences questions. And then three, the future a church that celebrates questions and i think it's even in that uh, in those chapters where you talk a bit about uh, my friend and colleague adam white in nebra who's a college pastor in nebraska and he is kind of uh, you know well known for doing his rant <laughs> to me about you know anything religious i can't remember exactly how he does but he basically sits in public spaces right and invites people to come rant to him about religion and he can tell you a billion stories about Interesting stories about that, but I want to hear from you about why you place questions and inquiry at the center of uh, of this vision that you're casting.
1: Well, I think it goes back to my experience growing up in this um, in this world of of church where uh, the pedagogical model was tilted towards the expert sharing the information with the amateurs. Uh, I grew up in this congregation uh, that was kind of a sparkling example of uh, a pastor who is an absolute expert, a great leader, you know, a true CEO, uh, charismatic, beloved by his community. Um, he also had this strong Brooklyn accent. And when I was a kid, I, I remember like little kid preschool age, I used to think that God must have a Brooklyn accent because this pastor did as well. And, 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 when I was sitting in his confirmation class several years later, uh, I, I kept going back to um, the way the, the instruction was, was set up. Uh, he would introduce a question, and, and then he would give us the answer, and we would you know, uh, furiously scribble it in the, the margins of our, of our Bible, and we were all enamored. We were all so impressed by by this by this pastor, and you know he he he, he was a, a true mentor to so many of us because so many of the things he said were just brilliant. You, know, you fast forward a few years later, and the friends that I sat with in that confirmation class and in those Sunday school classrooms, uh, and I and I think I'm the only one that's uh, that's still going to to church. And I don't think that this has anything to do with uh, with that pastor or with that church. I think it has to do with the way Christianity was, was approached as we were growing up was a model of experts communicating information to listeners, of speakers and preachers proclaiming uh, facts and certainties to audiences. What, what I'm more interested in, what I think will start to draw back those who have, have since left the church, will be spaces to sit with questions and uncertainty for a little bit longer. Uh, will be opportunities to engage in dialogue about how the messiness of the world fits with what God has in store for us there there's so many points of 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 tension here between um the promises that that God reveals to us and and some of frankly the the ugly realities that we've experienced in the year 2020 that creates a lot of space for churches to lean into the questions not to say, uh, you know, these these kind of almost crass uh, cliches like, well, God has a plan for all of this and, and you know, everything will, will be okay in the end. But to really listen to the questions that communities are asking as we navigate these really difficult circumstances, be, because there are a lot of questions about what God is up to and what faith means right now. And this is the perfect time to lean into that inquiry.
0: All of that is is super helpful, Ryan, and I, and I completely agree with it. That the 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 church has often been a place for people where where it's not necessarily a space of open inquiry, or at least there isn't an intentional attempt to make it such. But it's often just kind of a one way communication road. And and I I fully agree with that critique. One of the things I'm wondering about though um, is that I, I sometimes think that that position that we need to kind of spend more time listening can be. Some people can adopt that in such a way that that the kind of proclamation element, the kind of saying, "Hey, look, we are kind of custodians of this ancient faith," that can, in some ways, get silenced, um, and in part because there there have been legitimate ways in which that vocation. As the you know custodian of truth as proclaimers of you know th- things that that we believe are right um, has actually caused harm to people, and we should absolutely be aware of that and and everything. but it is it not also the case that on the digital media front at least, just thinking about you know things like YouTube and Instagram, m- so much of the the viral content is actually people preaching to you. I don't mean preaching literally, but they're actually making claims and stating opinions about the world, um, and uh, and doing so without you know without without uh, without apology at all. And so, talk to me a little bit about kind of the dialect there of of making space for inquiry, but also recognizing the church's role as like I guess as Luther would say, right, as a mouth house or as a place where proclamation <laughs> actually takes
1: place. Well, it's important to realize, going back to Luther, that we are a questions tradition. You, you read the catechism, and the catechism is framed in a question, and the, the question is answered with a question. You know, Luther asks, uh, you know, what, 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 what is this in response to, you know, what are the Ten Commandments? What is the creed? And then his, his next question is, what is this? You know, that's an invitation to dwell in the question. And, and I think that the catechism is an excellent guide here because it does end up going back to uh, the authoritative sources. It does re- uh, end up returning to the scriptures. Um, it doesn't turn its back on on tradition. Uh, it just makes that, that momentary pause before the, the tradition is, is communicated. Uh, when I look at social media, uh, one of the one of the challenges with with social media right now is this idea of of virtue of virtuous signaling and cancel culture, uh, the the idea that you have to say exactly the right things that your in group demands of you, or or you'll be shunned and ostracized. Like a lot of a lot of our kids, a lot of our church youth are probably uh, struggling with this or have struggled with this at, at one time or another. Um, Social media is a space that doesn't make a lot of room for, for inquiry and, and grace. Uh, and and so the challenge for the church is to pause for one moment before we jump into our proclamation, before we, we reveal the answer, um, to live into that liminal reality between the question and the answer, and and to let God speak into that moment. Um
0: no, I, Yeah, thanks, Ryan. That's that's helpful. I mean, I think I certainly think you're right about that. In, in some ways, I wonder if there, you know, like, like Google, the Google search engine, which is so powerful, and now, you know, sort of searches is itself a whole branch of tech that is fascinating and complicated. Uh, but it, it, uh, it kind of invites a person to, you know, insert a question, and then you get this kind of plurality of responses, which is which you kind of you know, you uh, 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 kind of spin out as being interesting, right? The fact that in response to questions, you have this like a billion responses sometimes, it seems like. Um, and, and, And I think you see in that an opportunity for the church also to kind of just be an open field of inquiry. It's not that the church doesn't have its centers of gravity. It absolutely does. But that we could probably learn something from the way that search functions in terms of kind of creating learning communities and learning communities where all questions are welcomed, where we might be centered in a particular tradition and may in fact be centered in particular answers, but where uh, those answers give us enough security that we can actually invite even the most dangerous of questions (laughs) into our
1: space. (laughs) Yeah, 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 indeed. And I would add to that, like when we look at, when we look at scriptures, um, so much of what we've been reading lately in the new Testament on Sundays has, has been the parables and the parables are also a great model of this. Um, you know, there are, there are ways that, you know, you might not want to interpret a certain parable. Uh, there are also many correct ways to interpret the the same parable. And, and just yesterday I was, uh, listening to, um, the, the parable of the talents and how, uh, you know, what if, what if we think of this not as, um, you know, a talk about using the gifts God has given us, but what if we think about this as a critique of our modern economic system and, and uh, how the master who is unforgiving and, and throws the servant into the, the well with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth uh, is really a stand in for um, the commodification of our, of our society so, uh, I think the parables offer a compelling um, allegory of how of how we can do this work. You know, we have a certain way we're going to interpret the parables. Yeah, we have the ability to welcome many different interpretations, many different lines of questioning. We have a certain set of answers that we've been committed to for two thousand years. It doesn't mean jettisoning those answers by any stretch. It just means we might. Uh, perhaps hold up additional answers and additional questions alongside those that have been at the core of our tradition.
0: Yeah, I think another way to think about it is just that these these kind of core commitments, sometimes, you know, we think about like the Apostles' Creed and, and, and whatnot, um, they create what I think is a capacious room in, into which we invite people and say, you know what, these are sort of the walls of our community, or these are the sort of the pillars on which we build our community, or these are the, I don't know what quite like the, this is the terrain, maybe they put it in those terms. This is the terrain that we generally play in. These are the peaks, these are the valleys. But within that terrain is an almost infinite space in which to ask questions. It's a, it's a, another way of putting it is that it's, it's a huge sandbox and we yeah. have some kind of regular furniture or toys or objects that we like to work with in our faith tradition and, and, and we want to invite you into that space because we believe that your diverse voice coming from where you are will have something meaningful to contribute
1: here. Um
0: I don't know. Do those metaphors work for you, Ryan, and what you're talking about? Yeah, they
1: they really do, especially in two thousand twenty where we we feel like we're so stuck at the bottom of the valley and we can't see the path. That that leads us out, and to know yet that the path does exist, and that you know the the, the promises that we have through Christ are are ever as valid as you know are, are as valid as ever. Um, and knowing that, you know, let's let, let's use that time to um, play in that proverbial sandbox uh, to, to think about what it means to be people of faith living through the longest stretch of liminal time I can imagine. Um, and, and let's really lean into that that sense of inquiry right now uh, because nobody has all the answers right now. Uh, we yeah. know that the promises stand present to us. Um, and let's be patient as we explore this new terrain together.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, as we kind of approach the conclusion of our time together, I wonder: are there any kind of topics, questions, themes that you wanted to lift up um, that we may not have covered up to this point?
1: Oh, there's there, so there's a few. Um, a, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, the, the the first thing that 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 really I think is important for anybody who's who's thinking about picking this book up is the um, encouragement that you're not going to find a how to do church digitally for dummies within this book. I intentionally try to stay away from a, a, a user's guide to the most common um, apps and, and and tools that we have at, at our disposal. What I really try to get at uh, through this book is the idea that we are called to be a church in this tech-shaped culture uh, that's responsive to the values of the culture, yet grounded in the promises of Jesus Christ. In, in that sense, you're actually going to find in this book a lot of stories that that don't even involve much technology. I, I tell stories about Adam White's uh, lingering at the quad at the University of Nebraska with his rant to me about religion sign. And I talk about that in the context of of new forms of connection. I, I tell stories about food cart ministries and what that has to say about the importance of of collaboration with the community. So this is not in any way um, a book that that tries to get you to use certain technologies in a certain way. Rather, it's a book that invites you to think about the digital age as a process of cultural transformation. And the more that we can understand that cultural transformation as church leaders, the more dynamic and innovative our churches are going to be. Fundamentally, that's what it all comes down to, uh, to Tie this back to the conversation at the start of the, uh, the the interview, where we we talked about you know the tech industry and its value of of leadership and innovation. Uh, that's what this book is all about: is instilling the church a new model of being innovative, a new model of of, of leading uh, into this digital age, and into these continued times of uncertainty.
0: Well, very helpful, Ryan. I really do want to encourage folks to. Pick up Grace and Gigabytes again. Great Christmas gift for the pastor or church leader or church council member that you might know, or also for yourself. Um, it's a it's a relatively quick read, and you are a very clear communicator, Ryan, both in person here and, and also in print, and so people will uh, benefit from that. Uh, you know, benefit from your your clear and, and really compelling communicating style. So, Ryan, are there? Um,
1: any other ways people can connect with you that you might want to let us know about? Uh, you can always follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and and, and Facebook. Uh, come come be my friend. Uh, I promise there there won't <laughs> be any kind of cancel culture or virtual signaling in my newsfeed. I tweet a lot about Wisconsin Badger football, so you're gonna get a, you're gonna get a confluence of, of of theology and college football like any like any good Twitter account. And I just want to put out one other plug for the book. Another audience I wrote this book for are the frustrated unchurched millennials like so many I've worked with in the tech industry. I feel like this book is almost an invitation for them to explore why church didn't click. And it maybe perhaps offers them an invitation to return home. So if you've got the unchurched millennial on your Christmas list this holiday season, uh, you know, feel free to share this with them. If nothing else, it might make a good coaster for their, you know, Portland IPAs uh, that they're (laughs) they're enjoying. (laughs) Ryan Panzer, thank you for
0: your time. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I really hope that you benefited from the conversation. If you did, make sure to leave a five-star review. Also, make sure that you're subscribed so that you can receive updates whenever new episodes drop. Thank you very much.